0: I'm Bianca Vivian, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome to episode 36. It is our fifth anniversary, double feature, a good woman, a good man. As with so many of these episodes before, I sort of had these gleanings, was reading the writing on the wall. And maybe two months ago, I wrote the words, a good man is one who takes responsibility. And a good woman puts down the responsibilities that were never hers to carry. And I felt those words, and I ruminated on them a lot. But there was something missing. And I kept wondering, why doesn't this feel complete, this thought? You see, sometimes things can feel poetic, but they lack a sense of profundity. And I realized that I was a bit too conciliatory, that somewhere along the way I had begun to lose my edge and many of my thoughts, they didn't break the thing that was holding me. You see, I thought for many years I had taken on the responsibility of how other people felt about me. And this sort of came to an apex last year when I entered into television because my mind was imprisoned and marred by thoughts of what other people would think of me. And I thought for a long time that that's what it meant to be a good woman, a good person. It wasn't enough to be good to people, I wanted to be good for people. I thought that's how you accessed other people's love, which I desperately wanted, as so many of us do. And so like so many women, I began to twist and contort and shrink myself, trying to be good, trying to be good at what I do, trying to be good to my family, a good sister, a good daughter, a good worker, a good lover. And at a point, all this goodness culminated to such a deep sense of self-betrayal. I had forgotten myself. I was so bent for years on asking the question, who do people love when they love me? And so often the answer was a good woman. But then I found myself justifying a lot of abuse, a lot of exploitation, a lot of bare minimum, no good romance. And I thought there was something holy. I thought that there was some level of martyrdom involved in being rejected or humiliated being talked down to, feeling invisible and thinking it was all just a part of being a good woman, taking on people's insecurities, people who would punish me for their shortcomings, people who were broke and hate me because they perceived me as rich, people who felt ugly and would attempt to make me feel ugly. And I thought if I could just rise above that, if I could just suppress the hard, hard feelings that that brought me, that I would obtain goodness. The issue is I'm not Christian. And this notion of endless suffering to a perceived end of good is not something I inherently believe in. No, in Islam we're taught, always show mercy first if mercy is available And if no mercy can be shown, then exact vengeance to the exact extent that it was done to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a blow for a blow. And this all culminates to this idea, put up a fight. And it was very difficult because then I had to reconcile, how do I be a good woman and put up a fight until so I first began to ask myself, well, what is a good woman? And then I had to go even further back, and I said, what is a woman? And that's how I happened upon this notion. A woman is someone who takes responsibility. This is what differentiates the adult from the child. You see, as children, it's always up to someone else our provision, our security, our needs are the responsibilities of someone else. And it's only when we are forced to by life and later on desire to take responsibility that we become adults. And as a sidebar, this is the danger of misogyny and this is the goal of patriarchy is to make women into girls and girls into women to force girls to take responsibility for their own safety and security for their own sexuality because they're left deeply unprotected and to take away women's autonomy over their own bodies their own finances their own destinies so that they cannot take responsibility for their lives And I became a woman very early because life, society, circumstance, culture, environment, forced me to take responsibility. The issue is that I took too much responsibility. First over, the people around me, people who I should have let fail, I should have let falter. And it detracted a lot from my sense of goodness, from my sense of wholeness, because it exhausted me deeply. And it tried greatly my sense of sincerity because I would do things, but it became very difficult to do them with enjoyment, with happiness, with joy, with security. So I came to that conclusion later. A good woman is one who puts down the responsibilities that were never hers to carry. But that wasn't enough, that conclusion, that thesis. And then I happened upon A passage in one of my favorite books just happened upon it. Deep is the Hunger by Howard Thurman, who was the primary mentor to the great Martin Luther King Jr. And he tells the story of a Buddhist priestess that goes into a village that's being terrorized by a cobra. All the village people are terrified of being bitten and killed by this cobra. And so this Buddhist priest, he goes into the village and somehow he makes a diplomatic agreement with the cobra and the cobra agrees to stop biting the villagers. And after a short while, the villagers, they learn that the cobra is no longer dangerous and the word gets around and they began to stomp on him, to twist him, to spit on him, to inflict him with a lot of harm and degradation, though they don't kill him. Well, months later, the Buddhist priest returns to the village, and the cobra, having feeling that he lost his dignity, he approaches the priest and he says, how could you? I thought we made an agreement that everything would be all good as long as I didn't bite anyone. And the priest calls him a fool. And he says, I told you not to bite, but I never told you not to hiss. And when Thurman retells the story, he says the point of it is that every man, every woman has to affirm their right to be, that a healthy threat, a willingness to defend oneself is necessary to obtain destiny, but also to just maintain the self. And I sat with this story for a long time, for a long time, many, many hours. I've ruminated on this story over the past few months. And I thought, yeah, that's true. You do have to have a healthy amount of threat. You have to defend your right to be. But something about Thurman's thesis really bothered me. And perhaps because he is a Protestant pastor. <laughs> this is where our notions differ. For a Cobra to agree not to bite is to denounce his very nature and any agreement whose peace, any contract that is predicated fundamentally on the abandonment of your nature is effectively slavery. If I have to agree to be what I am not in order to maintain peace with those who are by nature, my enemies, my opposition. If I have to rearrange the hierarchy of the universe, if I have to step outside fundamentally of what I am supposed to do to achieve peace, then of course, It would end in exploitation and abuse. Of course the cobra was twisted and spit on and degraded. And even maybe, as the Buddhist monk calls him a fool, maybe he should have hissed. Maybe it would have maintained a healthy threat, but it still would have cost too much. Why do I say all this? It dawned on me very suddenly when I finally came to myself thinking of what it means to be a good woman, thinking of the cobra and the priest, thinking of the last year of my life of trying to feel good enough and be good, even to those who were not good to me, thinking of all the words I swallowed and the cheeks I turned and the frustration I suffered through it all. The question was no longer, what does it mean to be a good woman? The question is, What the hell is so good about being a good woman? And I don't mean kindness or patience or anything associated with righteousness. I mean, what was so great about being liked by those I didn't much like, being accepted by those who were hell-bent on misunderstanding me? When did I get so wrapped up in the performance of good that I had turned my back On my very nature. And what is my nature? I'm a great woman. I'm a leader. I'm a thinker. I'm an artist. I am pushing against the grain at all times. I am cultivating a sphere of sincere belief and critical thought. Two things which betray most of modern culture. I have never been an agreeable character, not in any space that I ever existed in throughout my entire life, was never somebody with a large group of friends, was never somebody to turn a blind eye to what I knew was true and right and good, was not easily assuaged, was not easily accepted. And when I was younger, I don't think I cared much. I told myself, you're going somewhere. I think somewhere along the way, when when you face as much loss of love, of friendship as I have, when things cost so much, greatness costs so much, sometimes you find yourself making these soul deals just like that cobra, an animal so isolated, so feared, formidable, but dangerous, who walks through the world alone. And so if a part of life comes to you and says, just be good, you find yourself. I found myself denying my very nature. I found myself letting shit slide that I don't let slide. Found myself letting people talk to me in ways they don't talk to me. Found myself yesing and nodding listening to things that I felt I knew were dead wrong and just saying it's all good because I wanted to be a good woman. I even found myself, I was on a date last summer and I was in this fancy, fancy place in a fancy, fancy dress with a fancy, fancy guy. But almost the whole date, it was silent. And at one point I asked this guy, I said like, what's on your mind? you know, say something. And he says to me, oh honey, don't worry about it. I'm just quiet. You know, just like you're quiet, I'm quiet. And I remember thinking, wow, no one who's ever really known me in my entire life ever had ever described me as quiet. I asked myself, when did I start being quiet? Oh, I had taken throughout this journey so many losses. In the last five years, so many losses. And the more that they amounted, no matter how much I saw them pay off, the frustration and isolation of it all, the cost just seemed too high for greatness that I wanted to just settle for goodness, for goodness sake. And I always thought when they talked about the price of fame, selling your soul, I always thought that Someone would come with a duffel bag full of cash and gold bars. And it would be such a clear exchange, this for that. There would be some hooded ritual ceremony in a dark room. And they would say, be this way and you can get this thing. But it is so subtle. It is so subtle. The ways we trade, who we really are, what we're really meant to do, what we really want to say, what we really ought to say for goodness. How did I finally begin, how am I beginning to exit the dark of that room, the captivity that good womanhood had held me in for so long? I think of my favorite Lucille Clifton poem. It goes, I am running into a new year and the old years blow back like a wind that I catch in my hair, like." Strong fingers like all my old promises. And it will be hard to let go of what I said to myself about myself when I was 16 and 26 and 36, even 36, but I am running into a new year and I beg what I love and I leave to forgive me. And I felt in these last few months, part of me wanted to rush in to the wonders of whatever was waiting before me, of success, fame, glory, things that I had promised myself when I was 16, not understanding a thing of what was important, not understanding the preciousness or the brevity of life, just wanting to feel good, like we all wanna feel good, just wanting to be good. But I learned a few things. So I decided, I decided I owe myself a lot more than that. I realized at so many moments over the last year, sitting across from that guy, sitting in my dressing room on my set, that as good as it all seemed, it wasn't good enough. Because when I dreamed these big dreams of this big job and this big love in this big mind of mine, I dreamed it in a way that I could enjoy it with the freedom of who I really am. That if I was truly being good to me, choosing me being honest and truthful which is the evidence of true love honesty being honest to myself true to myself then what looked so good in life would also feel good because the thing about going against our true sense of goodness our true selves is that things can look good externally and we can obtain things through the performance of trying to be good to other people trying to be good at things that are not good for us. And everything will look good and seem good, but it is impossible to enjoy it. And engaging in that performance dulled my sense of self so much. I was in rooms full of people feeling completely alone. I was watching a person who I did not recognize engage in conversations that I did not necessarily agree with, surrounded by people that I did not necessarily respect. And in my mind, telling myself, it's all good, it's all good. There's a question, and it's urgent, and it's pressing. How do we walk worthy? I looked at all the times in my life, feeling like I was always on the outside. The outside of acceptance, the outside of love, the outside of family. Believing that being accepted inside of any of these things would make me feel what I needed to feel because that's what it all comes down to. We want to feel good. I wanted to be good so I could feel good because so many times I felt so bad. I said, if I can look good, then this man will like me and that'll make me feel good. If I can act good, that'll make my colleagues accept me and then that'll make me feel good. But your feelings betray you because you feel so good For such a little bit of time, and the rest of the time, your essence, your spirit, the thing that you truly are, you wither away at it and you punish it because I could not suppress this nagging sensation that it was not all good. So I've sat with myself for a long time now, for a while before I made this episode. I wrote a lot, I read a lot, and I came back to the question, what do people love when they love me? And sometimes we have to be driven to the edge of our minds to change it. And when I changed my mind, I began to ask myself, what do I love when I love me? And from that question, I wrote these words. To love me is to hate the lie. To love me is to love the perfect retort to an ill-timed question. Loving me is loving how I refuse to make a long story short how I use poetry to understand that which refuses understanding. To love me is to love how I search for meaning in everything, even to the point of self-betrayal, when the symbols and omens leave me far, far away from myself. To love me is to love how I always find my way back and the wisdom I glean along the way. To love me is to love how when I find the will to go on, I never hoard it always sharing it with others. To love me is to love a provider. How I give unceasingly and feel no lack. It's how deeply intentional I am about the life I lead and the words I say. To love me is to love how I look when I do my thing. Loving me is about loving someone who gets up after every bout, who refuses to die not for willpower or pride, but sheer foolishness and curiosity steeped in mouth-foaming madness and self-inflicted agony and yet lives on. To love me is to love how I live on. To love me is to love the goodness of me. Loving me is about loving someone who takes responsibility, a good woman. I wrote those words and I began to crawl out of that dark room filled with so much regret at the things that I accepted The frustration I felt with myself, I began to forgive it all. I'm not a perfect woman. And the greatness that I feel inside of me is just beginning to really take form, just beginning to peek out. I'm only just beginning to live. And I'm a good woman, but not in the ways that I thought. It doesn't mean what I thought it meant. I'm a good woman because I'm good to me. I feed myself good food. I let myself rest when my body is giving up. I'm honest with myself and when I lie to myself, I come back to myself and I forgive myself. I walk forward. I try my best not to look back. I operate with a lot of sincerity and I'm attempting to see life with clear eyes and hold it with strong hands. I am a good lover, but I will not take everything anything just to feel loved I am a good sister I am a good daughter I am a good friend but when it comes down to it I will choose me I will choose me I have decided on that I'm a woman because by force and by choice by destiny by will I take responsibility I'm a good woman because I've learned to put down the responsibilities that were never mine to carry because that's what's good and when I'm good to me It's all good. Now let's get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, how important is it to please your mother? We can't please people. It is one of the hardest lessons, one of the most bitter lessons I've learned is that constantly, for whatever reason, everyone around us is deciding how they feel. I've been in beautiful hotel rooms. I mean, gorgeous palace-like places with people who have the worst attitude towards life. And I walk into this cafe that I love every day in the hood and the women who work there are always so full of life, so happy, so buoyant, it's why I go. And it is always trapezing between these two worlds that have taught me that people are pleased when they want to be pleased. And if you're living to please others, you are wasting precious energy. What is important is to respect our mothers. Respecting our mothers is a spiritual duty, caring for our parents. And I used to tell myself, well, if they didn't care for me very well, why would I have to care for my parents? And it was funny because when I converted to Islam, the Quran said, care for your parents, because they did for you as a small child. And basically the tenet is that if your parents cared for you, even as a toddler, that that's a good enough reason to provide for and respect your parents for the rest of their lives. Because that's when you were the most vulnerable, the most susceptible to harm, really least unable to care for yourself. And the times where I felt most resentful and frustrated towards my mother, it was that tenant of respect that brought me back. But it's also important to attempt to understand your mother and not to understand your mother as her role in mothering. Not thinking about if she picked you up late from your soccer games or packed your lunches. Not thinking about if she was always sober or always fully present when you came home from school with a story. But think about her as a woman. My favorite, favorite English teacher in high school, Miss Joe. I would run into her classroom. Maybe I've told you all this story before, but I would run into her classroom during lunchtime and I would tell her about whatever fight my mother and I had been in the night before. And I would just be stewing in anger. And she'd be like, all right, Bianca, tell the story again, but this time use your mother's first name. And it was always this way of bringing me back down into reality to understand that I was talking about a person. Because the thing about mothers is that we idealize them to such an unfair extent we think about all of the things that they're supposed to do and they're supposed to be because for a long time pretty much until adolescence the first 12 years of our lives they are our whole world they are our whole world from the formation of our bodies to our coming out into society they are our world our indicator of safety our measure of the goodness that the world is capable of and that is too much and as a child it makes sense because as a child we view everything in the world as giant. Our house is always a mansion. The road before us is always incredibly long. We have small bodies and short legs and it's giant and our mothers seem giant and their impact is so outsized. But as we become adults, it's necessary to put them back in their proper place, that they are not just people, but they are also historical subjects. We are all experiencing individual lives and history at the same time. I used to tell my first-generation American friends this a lot. They would be talking about their parents, and they would just be going in on their mothers. Oh, my mother's so conservative. Oh, my mother's so strict. And I had to remind them, just as an outsider, I said, your mother crossed an ocean to get to you. And she's crossing that ocean every time you all talk. She's crossing that ocean again, from Lagos to New York. She's crossing that ocean from Pakistan to Texas. She's crossing that ocean. That is an enormous ocean to cross. Her day-to-day life looked nothing like your own. I had to forgive my mother for 80s beauty standards when a proper diet was cigarettes, cocaine, and a Diet Coke. And that was seen as nutrition. I hadn't realized that if she ever punished me with those impossible body standards, it was only because she had been so punished. And our mothers were not nearly as equipped with the wellness industrial complex of healing from trauma and understanding your triggers and developing methods of self-care. They were just living. They're still just living. And my mother was not well-mothered. I got very frustrated with my mother recently, and I gifted her the book, The Emotionally Absent Mother. And it's a really, really good book that I recommend everybody that has any strained relationship with motherhood, not just your own mothers, but even for me, I suffer from being emotionally absent sometimes or suppressing maternal instinct. And it's about all the ways that our mothers fail to show up for us emotionally, even if they are providers, even if they are protectors. And it's not just about healing yourself, but about understanding the root causes of it when our mothers are dealing with sickness, when our mothers are dealing with sick children, when our mothers are divorcing, when they're single mothers, when they're overworked, when they're stressed out, when they themselves are undermothered, it's important to respect your mother. It's important to attempt to understand your mother for who she is and her place in this world and time. And it is important to forgive your mother and not one time Or you write a letter and burn it and say, I forgive my mother, but over and over and over again. Forgive your mother so that you don't have this plaque of bitterness pent up of all the things that she did not do or say. And give your mother the gift of taking her off of the pedestal of perfection, which so many women are beheld to. Because on that pedestal is where she is punished and where she is humiliated. Forgive your mother for existing outside of the tenements of your feminism, of your view of what a good woman in society is. Forgive your mother for the times that she was complicit in silence, or for the times that she said the wrong thing. And I think the more that I do this work of embracing my inner child work, which I thought at one point was just complete bullshit, I have to admit. Years ago, I would read those words and roll my eyes. But the more that I acknowledge how much the child of myself lives in me, and I realize like I feed her well every day. (laughs) I take her to the park, to the museum, to the aquarium, to Bali. I take her around the world with me. I give her fancy clothes. I let her paint all over the place. I even still buy a Christmas tree, even though I don't celebrate Christmas, because growing up, my mom would always make us collectively decide what the color scheme of the Christmas tree was. And my sisters always won out, and they always wanted to do rainbow colors, and I always wanted to do monochrome pink, monochrome blue. And I still, to this day, will get a Christmas tree (laughs) just for my inner child to say look it's exactly how we want it to look and the more that I do that the more that I appease that thing inside of me the more that I calm her down that I sit with her and give her an attention that for so many reasons my mother could not just could not the easier it is for me to take my mother's hand and love the woman she is because It is so easy to exist in this space where we feel ashamed and we perpetuate a culture and cycles of shame where our mother shamed us and then we grow up and become very self-righteous in the way that we parent our own children or are able to work a job or have a credit card in our own name, things that women couldn't do 40 years ago much less 60, 70 years ago. We draw our boundaries and speak our minds and don't wear bras and drink ourselves under the table. And we go back to those households at Christmas time and anniversaries and we say, look, I'm a grown woman now. I'm a better woman. And we punish our mothers. And we say, I became everything you are not. And it heals nothing it heals nothing we build walls and call them boundaries and then one day we bury our mothers and we're left with all of the unforgiveness all of the misunderstanding all of the words that we did not say all of the words that we did not let go all of the words that we wish were said but we get to be the better women smarter than our mothers, savvier than our mothers my mom would do this thing that i hated That I hated. My mom growing up would deal with sickness a lot. My mom had cancer when I was in high school, but even before that, she would have knee pains and arthritis and all of these different ailments. And I have these vivid, haunting memories of my mother in the hospital from when I was very young of watching her try to walk down the hallway with a walker. Whoever was taking care of me at the time kind of taking me and being like, it's time to go now and leaving the hospital and wondering if my mother was going to die. And so I had this very deep fear, especially because my mother's older. She had me when she was 35. So I didn't grow up with one of those super young moms. And I would always be like, my mom's gonna die. My mom's gonna die. I was always haunted by this idea that my mom was gonna die. And recently my mom disappointed me, just failed to do something that she said she was going to do. And it irked me. And I said to her, okay, I'm drawing a boundary. You didn't do what you said you were going to do. And I'm frustrated and I'm hurt by it. And so this is the consequence. And I didn't cut her off or threaten not to talk to her or anything like that. I I merely disinvited her to something. And my mother said, and it pissed me off. I was really angry. She said to me, I'm only getting older. I wish you wouldn't punish me with these things because one day I won't be here. I'm getting older. I'm dying. I said, Mom, I'm dying too. Mama, I'm dying too. I'm dying too. And it was important, it was incredibly important, this moment for us. Because it was one of those moments where I realized I'm not a child anymore. I said, you come home to a loving husband, I come home to myself. You experience safety and security, I'm still putting it together. I said, I'm dying too. I'm wondering what's on the other side of all of this too. I'm striving, I'm feeling like I'm running out of time, I'm falling short. I said, I need you to try for me, cause I'm trying for you. I said, who leaves this world first is knowledge that only God has. I said, let's try to live together now. Let your memories of me be good memories. Let my memories of you be good memories. Let us make a good life together now. And I think living together should be the goal. And maybe that means blaming her a little less harshly when she falls short. And maybe that means her taking the slightest bit more responsibility in the ways that her actions affect me. Many of us are so young who listen to this, you're so young and we are just beginning to understand how truly difficult womanhood is. Even if you're the perfect mother, even if you're the perfect wife, even if you're the perfect worker, the girl boss, the self-starter. Your body will still betray you. Your joints will still ache. Wrinkle lines will form, whether you do preventative Botox or not. My mother has gifted me so many different kinds of strength, so many lessons that she learned the hard way, that just by mere observation, I avoided. And my mother cheers me on. Always she is rooting for me. And that's more than she can even say for her own mother. And that makes me cry sometimes, wondering who was rooting for her. What support did she have to break generational cycles? Who was embracing her or telling her she was good enough or beautiful enough? I know because of the speed at which the world changes that if I'm blessed with children one day, I will have to cross an ocean to get to them. Even if they are born at the exact hospital in the exact season, I will still have to cross the ocean of history to understand my children. I have to cross an ocean of history just to understand my younger sister. And we are three years apart. And I will need to ask for forgiveness so constantly. And when I am looking for their mercy, which we all need from our children, a model of forgiveness, tenderness, and respect that they see in the way that I treat my own mother. And I'll say, Will you see how I treat grandma, And I hope to speak so highly of my mother that my children say, well, grandma's perfect. And I'll say, no, baby, but grandma is a good woman. And I'm a good mother because I'm trying. All we can do is try for one another. Pleasing is pointless because it's inexhaustible. People's moods, whether they're pleased or not, change so many times throughout one single day. We cannot please people, but we can attempt to teach them how to love us and we can try very, very hard to love them, and the attempt is all we have. Dear Viv, I'm so stuck, so sad. What do you do when you know you've fallen for the wrong person? I'm falling in love with this man, but our lifestyles just aren't compatible. I know he's not the one for me, and we're not even sexually compatible. I know we can't just be friends because if any of us find someone else, we'll need to part ways out of respect for our future partners because we've tried to pursue things romantically, but I just can't let this man go. One thing that I realized recently as I was seeing somebody that was, that I very quickly learned right after I had begun seeing them that it wasn't going to work out, but he was so fine. I mean, he was really fine and he was easy to talk to. And I didn't know it at the time, but what I did need at the time was someone really fine (laughs) and easy to talk to because at that moment in my life, things seemed very complicated and I was experiencing all this pressure and a lot of frustration. And when he'd show up, he'd sit with me and we'd talk. And he was much older than me And I like that because older men, they have this sincerity about them that I really appreciate. There's something about when men's bodies begin to betray them, (laughs) when their knees don't work the same. And I always say when they don't have the same jump shot, that's when they humble themselves a bit. And so whenever I would speak about the things that were tripping me up, he wouldn't do what a lot of young men do, which was rush right past it he would think about what I was saying, really take his time with what was going on with me because he saw that the fears that I had were real. And when someone's lived a certain amount of time, they can tell you, they know that life can go many ways. And I appreciated that because so often what you get with people who don't have a lot of life experience is the platitude, it'll all work out or don't worry and it wasn't like this was my dream guy because he still could not intervene on my suffering and that's the real measure of how much someone loves you is their ability to intervene upon your suffering if you tell them that you have cancer will they sit with you through chemotherapy will they be there when you lose your hair or the meds make you nauseous or they have to change around their work schedules like that's that's the love that we all deserve, like a love that can carry us in ways that we often cannot carry ourselves. Why do I say this? Because I want to free you from this notion of the wrong person. He's the wrong person. Because when we tell ourselves that someone is the wrong person, then we punish ourselves for our own desires. And this, is very important, and I want you to listen to me, because this causes a world of harm and self-destruction that sometimes culminates to the manifestation of violence. You're thinking, what the hell, Viv? That's taking it very far. But I want you to think about the man who begins to have sexual desires and feelings for another man, or for a transgender woman, perhaps, and they say to themselves, this is the wrong person. And it culminates in such self-flagellation, such mental punishment, that it then cultivates this need to break something, to harm something, either ourselves out of shame, or the other person out of the reflection of our own self-disgust. We want, what we want and the heart for all of the self-help and meditation and mental fortitude we attempt to cultivate. The heart is a perverse and strange thing. I said in an episode long ago a lesson that my best friend Laura taught me when I came to her about someone that I was so in love with who was so wrong for me and I just couldn't seem to quit it to the point where I was sick of myself. And she said to me, you're just not tired enough yet because when you're finally tired enough, you'll walk away. And that was a lesson I learned so many times, so many times in my young womanhood that we have to exhaust ourselves. You have to get in bed and be so displeased, so violated, so jarred, by the experience of your sexual incompatibility. You have to be sitting across from the dinner table so unstimulated. And the easy thing to do is to judge the other person. And I cannot tell you how many times I've sat with my friends who verbally bash good men, men who truly love them in whatever way they know how. And they say, well, he's not sexy enough or he's not smart enough. He's not worldly. He's not interesting. He's too young. Good men that show up for them and tell the truth and don't step out on them. And, and I ask, at what point do you stop blaming this person for the ways in which you betray yourself? Just let me know, because I'm sure that if you had enough self-regard, and even a modicum of regard for this person, you would let them go. Because we cannot be good to people who we do not believe are good for us. It limits our ability to a large extent. Men who I was fundamentally incompatible with could never get the best of me. If I think that I have a funny, witty disposition, but you think I'm crass, and that my jokes take it too far, then we will never be enjoying how funny I am. (laughs) I think it's charisma. You think it's provocation. I think it's sexy. You think it's lewd. We hold on to people trying to find a right way to do the wrong thing. And when we indulge our selfishness to that extent, because we like the things that that we get from them, we like the endorphins, the euphoria, the high, the ecstasy of attention and affection for which we are gluttons and hoarders. And then when they don't perform exactly as we wish they would, when they don't say the right thing or address the right way, then they are the wrong person. I need you to take responsibility. You are not a victim. You are making a choice out of a circumstance of convenience because you don't want to do the hard thing of being alone and you are deeply misinformed of believing that the consolation prize for failed relationships is friendships when in reality friendship is a completely other separate kind of love and responsibility that is not just something that you happen upon when you've decided that you can't sleep with someone that you at one point wanted, but it is a whole different kind of work that often merits an even more crucial factor of honesty, which does not seem to be at play here. And I want you to stop because you're better than that. And I'm saying this to you in this bare way because I wish, oh, I wish somebody had said it to me. Continuing to engage romantically and sexually with someone who you do not want. That is what is wrong. We do these things for many reasons. The fear that we'll never find something better. The boredom and frustration that comes with being alone. The wave of disappointment that comes with dating. Where we tell ourselves, okay, well this is good enough. But a relationship that does not meet your needs is not a good relationship. It's not a functioning relationship. And I say that you're not a victim because relationships that function in this way consist of a series of choices. And every day that you don't make the choice to end it, that also is a choice. And this is how we have children that are born into loveless and frustrated households with two parents who were just rolling the dice in avoidance of loneliness. And we get the manifestation of that avoidance in these precious little beings that we will look upon as a manifestation of something that we inherently felt was the wrong thing. And we will attempt to not treat them as a byproduct of that act, to not punish them, to not resent them, as many people do their kids. And we will convince ourselves that it was all beyond us, all out of our control because we failed to accept responsibility for the places that we put our bodies and our emotions and we let it go too far. The consequences are so grave, and we are so naive. Sometimes we think, I'll just step a little bit into this pool. I remember when I was vacationing in Antigua recently, in August, I saw this beautiful blue water, and it was so tantalizing, and I ran in, and literally two feet from the shore, there was this dip, this inset in the ocean, and in it were just nothing but shard of really sharp rock and coral. And I fell right in and I cut up my knees, my feet. I was in so much pain. I ran back to the beach. And when I tell my homegirl, she said, damn, looking out, you never would have known. Thinking that we're doing something to avoid a momentary, period of loneliness, a momentary period of uncomfortability or awkwardness of telling someone how we feel. All of these things that we do to avoid the hard thing and we end up punishing our partners for who we think they're not. We end up with children that are born into loveless homes. We end up undoing years of heartbreak and years of therapy for a relationship that we could kind of tell not that far into the water how wrong it truly was and we wreck our own self-esteem and sense of self-worth but on top of all of this we waste our time we waste our time we waste our time because this is how we make a choice to spend our lives we do it because fundamentally we do not believe that we are worthy of great impassioned love. We cannot make that leap from the childlike notion of a fairy tale to a good, bountiful, stable, healthy relationship. We cannot find the middle ground between completely objectifying somebody and using them for the way that they make us feel and our print charming. And the last time I did what you're doing now with the guy I had described earlier, My therapist was like, why are you doing it? She's like, you've had so many of these short term situations that didn't really fully meet your needs and you seem to let them go quite easily. So what is it about this that you're holding on? I said, oh, well, this one, he's actually incredibly special. I said, I am holding on and I feel like he will be the most memorable of all of them. And she said, why? I said, because he will be the last. I came upon the revelation that to get what you really want, you have to be willing to have nothing at all. And I just have finally come to a point where I like myself more, where I'm not so scared to lay with her at night, to wake up with her in the morning, to pour her coffee, to tell her to have a good day. Isn't it crazy that we will live in haunted houses just to not feel alone? with relationships that are haunting us, the way this one is haunting you, and we'll sit in it, we'll say, well, he's a good man. And we don't even realize that out of our own self-betrayal, we've also excluded the other person from any chance at finding someone who will truly believe that they are the best love possible. I want you to do something crazy that maybe you haven't done in a long time. Maybe you've never done it at all. But I want you to put aside the most embittered, broken, traumatized, jaded version of yourself for five minutes. And I want you to entertain the fantastical notion of a soulmate. Someone who loves you. Someone who loves and knows you. Who gets the nuances, the changes in your voice, the stride in your walk. Someone who loves your body and when they touch you, it's electric. Someone who you would want to carry this thing we called life with to the very finish line. To the point where you can imagine being the one person beside them as they pass into eternity. I'm not talking about walking down an aisle. I'm not talking about someone to sign paperwork with. I'm talking about someone who you would give all your time, your time, which is what we have, who you would let see the best and worst of yourself. And then I want you to entertain an ideal self, the version of you that you love so much, that you're proud of the way she spends her days, the way she spends her money, the way that she talks, the way that she walks and imagine giving her over to that person that you imagined. And I want this experience, this exercise, which will inevitably produce a bit of shame when you think of how you're living. And I want you to take that shame and I want it to produce some courage because shame is the source of pride, which also is the cause of why we cling selfishly to things is our pride. But shame is also the source of courage that we think of what we're not and what we think we cannot do. And suddenly it triggers something in us that says, just try. And in all of this, I want you to believe that there is something inherently good about moving on. And instead of constantly saying, this is the wrong person, this is the wrong person. How do I keep falling into bed with them? This is the wrong person. I want to give you a lesson in goodbye and do it before you see the person, because that's when you can release and cry. And I want you to say these words. I want you to say thank you. Thank you for the goodness that you've brought. Thank you for sitting with me, for listening to me, for loving me the best way you knew how. Thank you for talking with me, for answering my phones and text messages, for being there at the end of my bad days and the beginning of my good ones. Thank you for lunch dates and coffee dates, for driving me around and holding my hand and taking the steering wheel with the other and getting me from place to place. Thank you. Thank you for taking my side when I was dead wrong. Thank you for letting me see how I was right when I was made to feel dumb by others. Thank you for letting me wear your jacket and going a little bit colder on that day with all that unexpected wind. Thank you for your time. You are not the wrong person. You are a good person. Hell, maybe you're a bad person, but thank you for the good that I have found in you. Thank you. And then I want you to say this. I release you. I release you with love. I release you. I give you back to fate. Our fates will walk parallel now. They will not be intersected or intertwined. I release you. I release you with the memories that you have of me. Please forgive me for the ways that I've fallen short. Please forgive me for the wrong I've done or the words I've said or whatever malice that you hold against me. I release you with all of the energy that you gave. I give it back to you and I reclaim the energy that I've taken and given to this affair. I wish you happiness in the life you choose. I wish you love. Even if you don't mean it, you say, I release you and I wish you love. I thank you, I release you. And lastly, you say, I forgive you. I forgive you, I forgive you. I forgive what this has done to me for the ways that it's made me jaded and callous and bitter and impatient for the ways that it has affected the way that I love. I forgive you, I forgive you for the impact that this has had on my self-confidence and my self-esteem. And this is how you let something go. This is the art of letting go. And you do this with a little bit of shame, a little bit of courage and a lot of faith. And when you turn from that person, you turn to yourself and you say, I owe it to myself. I am a good woman and I am better than this. I forgive myself and I will forgive myself as many times for as many days until I am tired and I choose better for myself and I will continue in pursuit of the highest good because I am loved by many people for who I am and I want to find someone that I love, that I do not have to constantly edit, someone that I don't have to brew witchcraft or cajole or manipulate into trying to understand me, someone that I don't have to close my eyes and turn off the lights to sleep with. I deserve a good life because I am trying to do the right thing. And next time I will let it be a much shorter process. If I find the quote unquote wrong person, I will not follow them home. I will not call them again and again and again. And I will shorten these intervals until I find the strength to let go, not of people, but of this habit of acting out of a place of lack of self-worth because I am capable of more than that. Dear Viv, I'm 22 with big dreams. I'm working in a corporate job to fund my projects, but I just feel so burnt out that I can't focus on my creative projects that I want to do. I'm constantly being distracted by the men I date, but who give me validation, by the work that funds the projects, by searching for a house that will make me feel comfortable, but will take away my funds from my passions. How do I manage it all? Being good to ourselves requires that we constantly check in with our intentions. We have to ask ourselves why we do something. But once we check in with those intentions, we have to at some point realize when we're out of alignment and that that misalignment comes from not being able to justify those intentions i remember at a time where i would date for a sense of validation and i didn't realize that if i just really worked at what i so felt i needed validation in that i would have things that produced a natural sense of validation that I wouldn't need to look for in people. I think for a long time, men were my audience so that I didn't have to do the work of cultivating a real audience. And in that way, I was doing both of us a disservice because I was always performing. Because relationships are for appreciation and experiencing life with another person, not for performing to receive an applause. And I also have learned, as far as managing dreams the other day someone said oh there are so many talented people in the world there are so many talented people and the difference between the people that truly make it and those that don't is luck and i thought I don't believe in luck at all. I believe in favor, I believe in destiny, but luck its just too easy a scapegoat. But I would say that the fundamental and crucial factor as far as dreams go is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. And I wish it wasn't. When people ask me what is the way forward in trying to do a million different things, usually what they're truly asking is how can i get the maximum output for the least amount of sacrifice when i was pursuing this dream to be on television i had just graduated college and i remember the career counselor at columbia told me whatever you do you better achieve it in the first two years out of school if you want to get a really good corporate job or apply to law school because two years after you graduate you're no longer going to be seen as competitive compared to the people who just graduated. She told me that and I said, wow, I got two years. I'm gonna put it all on the line. And I didn't apply to any corporate jobs. I decided that I would try to work for myself to make ends meet. I would get a really cheap apartment and that I would go for it. I would spend all day in cafes, working on my pitch deck, in the gym, networking i had my first manager for a bit and he would call me eight o'clock at night and be like i need you in dc by 9 a.m tomorrow morning would send me the train ticket i was running on this electric high and i was all in and in the back of my mind i remembered my counselor's words she said two years whatever you do You better do it in two years. And all the while I had so many people, my dad being like, what are you doing? Go to business school, go to law school, quit wasting your time. People being like, TV, you've never done that. Get a stable job, have a backup plan, have a plan B. They couldn't understand the sacrifices I was making and they thought it crazy to go all in. And I don't blame them. The composite of our lives, when people measure them, they won't measure by the amount of money that we made, by the children that we have, by the political alignments or the things that we leave behind that we've done professionally. But life is actually produced by what we value. And what we value is fundamentally informed by what we believe, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe, about why we are fundamentally here, why we exist, what we believe about God, and what we believe about the worth of other people. And I believed that I was worth, the best part of me believed I was worth going all in for. I said, I am talented. No one can do what I do the way I do it. All I need is one yes. And the cost of that one yes in time, in money, in hardship was so high. And the benefit of that is that when i finally stood to collect the many things that emanated from that yes i knew i had truly paid the price i say all this to say there comes a time where you realize there is no management of destiny there is no control you either step in or you step out. And for me, the comfort was, I tell people all the time, there was plan A and plan B. There was plan Allah and there was plan Bianca. And I told myself if plan A truly failed, which really means I quit, then I would resort to plan B, plan Bianca. And I tell people all the time, I never got to plan B. I'm still on plan A. But that is because there was so many things I was willing to live without. I was so lonely sometimes, so broke sometimes. I mean, broke, like really, really, really broke. But it all came back to that fundamental belief. I'm the best at what I do. People said, well, you've never done television. I said, well, then I will learn and nobody will learn faster or try harder. I said, I am unwilling to be outworked. And it was as if life asked me, well, what will you give? I said, I will give everything besides my soul. And the moment that you bet everything, that's when life starts collecting, that's when you start losing friends, that's when you stop dating, that's when you stop going out, that's when you start studying. I would be reading books on screenwriting or watching old episodes of Oprah. Uh in the middle of a cafe and people would be like, what are you working on? I'd say a television show. Well, when does it air? I'd say, I don't know. And what you see as the culmination of that work now as a dream, it started way before anybody had bet on it, any money was invested in it, before anybody believed in it, I believed in it. And if you believe in this dream, I'm not going to say it's now, I'm not saying quit your job, And move to la tomorrow i'm not saying that we all have a path in life one of the greatest stage actors i ever met he told me he started when he was 30 years old we all have a time and it's usually when things begin to compound when we begin to carry a million things and it's our intuition telling us if we want to go forward in this thing we're gonna have to put something down life is going to ask us for something and the issue is so many people The dream is the one thing that they think they can put down. So they stop the singing or they stop the dancing. They stop saving up. They stop taking off time to go to rehearsals. And then our lives pass us by and we wonder, where did the dream go? It's why I love the Langston Hughes poem, Harlem, when he says, what happens to a dream deferred? Because it's not a dream destroyed, it continues to live within us. But it is deferred for the many things that we decide are more important. There are so many ways in which life will ask you your priorities. And we forsake love and we forsake passion and we forsake the things that truly move us to our highest good. And we tell ourselves it's because we're just getting by. But oftentimes it's because deep inside we do not believe we are good enough. And our fear of our own inadequacy keeps us from pursuing our highest good in a way that we rob ourselves and the world took a lot of courage to say I am worth an honest to God try and because you know me and you've seen me and you're listening you know how this story ends but what is perhaps even more ironic is that when I sat down with that college counselor in May of 2018 and she said you have two years to figure out what you're gonna do what she was asking me to do was to either choose myself to trust life to trust My God, that he keeps his promises to trust in my own abilities and talents, my youthfulness and my dreams, or to trust in systems which had betrayed me my whole life, the economy, to bet on people's ability to value black women, to value women's labor, to hear me, to listen to me, to give me promotions, to give me proper pay. She was asking me to bet on those systems, and it didn't take two years. It took four But two years later, in May of 2020, I was sitting in an apartment conjuring up a guest list for my first season of television, still working, still hoping. And my friends were fearing the end of a world that they truly believed in, the jobs that had betrayed them, the economy that had betrayed them, the justice system at that time, at the height of betrayal. And I had never felt more at ease in my life knowing that I had bet on myself, bet against a world that at that moment felt like it was ending whatever you do choose yourself do not choose against yourself if the most important thing in the world if you have these dreams of security and safety to build a loving home the fridge is always full and there's an extra bedroom for a guest to sleep that is a worthy dream pour everything you have to make that happen if you dream of being an artist and playing on the world stage, then make sure you're always returning to that microphone. Make sure you're always putting a song out in the world in the best way that you have and that you know how at the time and trust that life will come together. And when you get that call, if you remain on these paths towards that dream, which even the dream of security and safety will ask for large sacrifices, then take that courage and act accordingly. But the ways that we betray ourselves And the things that we think we need, like external validation, like millions of dollars of funding, like perfect self-esteem or self-love, at some point, we also have to grow up and put these notions down to do what really must be done I'm in the pursuit of my dreams. I am in the pursuit of good. I am in the pursuit of meaning and in the pursuit of love. And I've had to learn to forsake a lot of things in that pursuit. And it's not a perfect dream because it's not a perfect pursuit, but this is a good life. We are wonderfully blessed to be living in it, to be awake and alive to possibility. We are able to start over again and again and again. You're 22, you're at the beginning of your life. You're at the beginning of your life. Make choices that are life-giving that make you feel alive. I had a friend recently who told me, she just turned 28 two days ago, and she says to me, feel like I've given up on my dreams. It's been so long since I've written anything. I'm beginning to believe everything that my parents told me about being an artist, and I haven't accomplished anything for myself, and it makes me feel bad, because my birthday's coming up. And I said, you're getting married. In the springtime, you just bought a house, you have a garden, you're in love. You're wiser than when I met you when we were so young. You're more thoughtful, you're more careful, you're more caring, more enterprising, more studious, stronger. You're a good woman. I said, wasn't that also the dream? I said, maybe all this, the falling in and out of love, the cultivating the garden, the fights with your mother, Maybe you had to live a little to find something to write about. Maybe this all culminates to the dream. Maybe some people wake up at 22 and they say, I know I got it, generational anxiety, a television show. And they strive for it and they watch it at 25. Maybe that's some people. And maybe some people live and live and live and they wake up 43 and they say, The Bluest Eye, it's a novel. And they get the Nobel Prize for literature. Maybe some people wake up 45 in the middle of a kitchen and they say, I want to go to Taiwan. I want to go to Vietnam. I want to go to Indonesia. I want to cook. And they end up Anthony Bourdain. And wherever you are in that journey, in that pursuit of your highest good, I don't want you to be fooled. All of us will need every bit of time that we get to achieve ourselves in this life. And our vocation, our career, our passion is one part of a large dream. And I'm, of course, speaking from the most optimistic and privileged purview of having lived my own, if even for a moment. But I still have so many dreams, the most urgent of which now is learning to love and choose myself with no reluctance and no shame. It's what I deserve. It's what I owe myself. Good people deserve good things. Best we can do is take responsibility for the role that we play in our own happiness. The best thing we can do is take responsibility when we impede on others' pursuit of their own. The best thing we can do is attempt to make the best life possible for ourselves, to assist in creating the best life possible for those that we love, for the planet, to do the most good that we can do with the power that exists in our own hands and to trust that so much of it, which is not in our own hands, lies in the hands of a God that is fundamentally for us, not against us, that desires to see us happy. I believe God is good. And I don't mean in the way that the church ladies used to say, oh, God is good. I mean, God is good that the fundamental nature of the highest entity is good and therefore my life was bending towards good, that it was leading towards good, that I am good, that my nature, that the thing in me is good despite all of the broken parts. We are running into the new year and I'm hoping that you will pursue your highest good. And when you fall short of that, as we will often, 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 I hope you forgive yourself and you remember something of these words. I love you. I love you so much. Five years of my life, five years of my life I have shared with you all. Some of you have tuned into this for five years, which if you've ever had a project, stretch it even into five months, is a feat and there were so many times where i nearly let this project go and i said the world will be fine without me there's nothing left to say especially as i saw the tick tocks on self-help and relationship building and self-care and i saw so many mechanisms through which people could find wholeness and healing advice and i didn't know if I had anything original or valuable, but I'm realizing things don't have to be original, they just have to be authentic, and that only I can be me. And so many of you all have showed up for her so many times, and we have something so good, so, so good. We have grown up together. I loved you then, I love you still, and we are on our way. Wishing you more life, more love, and a happy new year. I'm Bianca Vivian, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. Oh may hey how sweet, we how always the, the sound sound let save saved the red the Say, girl, but now I'm found, I still can't feel you. But now oh, oh, I'm was found was lying, but now, oh, now, now. I see. Oh.